You're listening to the Mashup Americans. Hi, I'm Rebecca Lehrer. And I'm Amy Choi, and we are the Mashup Americans. And this is our final episode of this season, and it's all about a core principle of our lives, hospitality. Hospitalité. <laughs> That's French. Hospitalidad. That's Spanish. <laughs> we're going to call it extreme hospitality if we're being more accurate. Mm-hmm. Say as first generation, as people who are minorities, as immigrants, this is one of the most important shared cultural traits we have. Hospitality and welcoming in friends and family and new friends and chosen family and neighbors and anyone else via food. Oh, yes. Just so you know, I mean, extreme hospitality means making sure that anybody who comes to our house can never leave unless they are absolutely like stuffed beyond capacity with food, that they have presents, that they leave with leftovers, you know, the usual. They they have their own of house slippers that also feels important oh of course i mean get out of here also that you're planning what the food is going to be for your guests for like the whole week before correct correct that feels important and our guest today totally gets it we're so excited to have him here pierre tiam is a celebrated senegalese mashup chef with restaurants in dakar lagos new york city he's a food entrepreneur whose company yolele foods is really like a culinary ambassador for West African food staples. And finally, he is a cookbook author. And his most recent cookbook, Simply West Africa, is an homage to his ancestral cooking and also a statement against borders and for the extreme hospitalidad that we love so much. We were so honored to sit down with Pierre recently. So let's go. Oh, also, he has a very clear, and definitive answer to the Jolof Wars, and we're into it. Ooh, ooh, let's see what happens. I do have one really important question from your tours around West Africa, and that is who makes the best Jolof rice? <laughs> oh, you're going to start a war. I mean, I just I have some questions. <laughs> it, it, it's, it, it's the most beautiful war out there. <laughs> <laughs> you would agree, I'm starting right? the, the the Latin American version is I'm starting a tamal war that no one's on board yet, but I'm like <laughs> M- Mexican tamales versus oh. Central American. I know who wins, but I we don't have. To. <laughs> well, the tamal war is interesting because a lot of people don't realize that uh, Mexico and lots parts of Latin America had a strong African influence, West African influence. Yes, Mexico at some point was the largest by far of the West African migration during the Middle Passage, by far. Mm-hmm. And then it's not talked about enough. But when you look at the regions of Mexico that have the Afro-Mexican uh, influence, and you look at the food, you wonder, hey, you know, I mean, ingredients like rice arrive to the Americas through uh, from Africa. It's, the, it's a family of rice that's not the Asian rice. That's the, there's two big rice, it's a, Oriza glaberima and Oriza sativa. The Oriza African, the glaberima one, is the one that was taken from West Africa mm. to North Carolina, then South Carolina, then Mexico, then Brazil. That's that mm. same family of rice that brought a big influence in the cuisine of the region. So that's one. Second is tamal, right? So tamal in Veracruz, where Mexico tamal is, is from, Veracruz and Puebla, that region, they still wrap their tamal the way we do it in West Africa, in Nigeria, in banana leaves. Mm. 
instead of corn husk like they do in other parts, we wrap it in banana leaves. Mm-hmm. We still do it, you know, the, with some, but the filling changes. It could be with beans. It's, it's just, I mean, it varies too in other parts. But that's original tamal is arguably coming from. I'm not saying we do the best one, even though we have. <laughs> oh, no. I I believe actually strongly that the banana leaf tamal is the better tamal. And in Central America, where my mom is from, they're all banana leaf tamals. Well, they do a corn one and I don't like it. And it's too dry. And yes. that's what if I'm going to have a battle, it's going to be this one. <laughs> and I believe that the other ones are too dry and the banana leaves are so moist and delicious. Exactly, exactly. I never knew that. That food, food being uh, an opportunity to tell a story because it traces you. I mean, you connect the ingredients, you connect the arrival. I mean, the rice, for instance, you know, how you never knew. But imagine Mexican food without rice. So that's like... Impossible. One one really important contribution. So talk about rice now. Jollof rice. Jollof (laughs) is Senegal. Jollof is the traditional name for Senegal. Okay. Yeah. Before it became Senegal, that was the Jollof kingdom. You know, and the Jollof Kingdom is the place where the Jollof rice is from. Nigerians call it Jollof rice, right? Because it came from the Jollof people. Ghanaians call it Jollof rice because it came from that place. Now they claim to make the best one. And that's the type of war you can't really compete with because, you know, <laughs> every every mama makes the best, right? So, so yeah, the Ghanaians, so that's, that's the thing. But I love it, you know, I love it because this, again, a way to see food as a an agent of unity, really. It's like, yeah. you know, mm. that's one ingredient and how it transcends borders too, which is really something that we need to pause and think about it. It transcends borders. It's embraced by the cultures, but it also takes specific uh, ways of that culture because of the environment. And then the Ghanaian jollof becomes more like smoky and crusty and the Nigerian jollof becomes hot spicier because they love that type of heat. And the Senegalese jollof is the original one and mine is the best, obviously. But obviously. Like, <laughs> Wait, obviously. do you, in your restaurant in Lagos, do you serve... Senegalese. Yeah. Senegalese. And <laughs> what, do the, what do the Nigerians <laughs> customers say? Well, it's been a destination in, in Lagos since we opened. It's, it's, it's at the place that received the locals as well as the expatriates. It's really, I mean, consistently we've been getting great reviews. You know, we do you know, not only the jollof, but of we course. do food that's inspired by West Africa, which is a great concept as well. Again, another way how food is a powerful weapon mm. is through that restaurant concept in Lagos. We wanted the food to transcend the borders even more to tell the real stories because those borders are not real. They are not. Especially when it comes to Africa. Those borders were like imposed upon us in some place in Berlin some time ago (laughs) for that had no reality with what the the continent was going through, but that just for the interest of the colonialists. So Mm -hmm. through this food, we are reclaiming this, who we are without these borders that were imposed upon us. And that's why my, my last book that I've co-written with, with my wife, Lisa, we call it Simply West Africa for that reason, you know, Simply West African. Because you see, you know, Jollof in Ghana, Jollof in Senegal. And uh, what is Ghana and Senegal anyway? So mm-hmm. there's like those those things that are, are not really real. And we want to be part of the conversation by by doing that with food. You and I, we met in 2019, which feels like 
a lifetime ago. <laughs> and, you know, we met at this like wild conference that was not really a conference organized by John Maida. It was like an anti-TED of all of these thinkers and leaders and creatives and artists in this like random hotel in Cape Cod. It was so beautiful. You were there with your lovely wife, Lisa. And I just remember, I don't even know if it was in passing, but you said something about how hospitality is about opening up your culture. And that has always stuck with me. And so I wonder just to like start off this conversation, you know, what does hospitality mean to you? Like, how do you define it? That's an excellent question. I'm from Senegal, right? And Senegal, we have a word for hospitality is teranga. Mm -hmm. And uh, teranga is one of our highest value. I mean, teranga is, is uh, the, the word that symbolizes it. As a matter of fact, you know, all our national teams, the soccer team, they're all called Lions of Teranga. And, and, and Teranga is more than just hospitality, the way you would translate it here. It's, uh, it's really the way of uh, giving the best of what you have. So in, in Senegal, you come to Senegal, uh, Amy, and you go to any home, even if you are not expected, you would be offered something, and usually it would be food. They would want to share that with you. And if you come for a meal that's like planned, you would realize that we eat around the bowl, and the way we eat around the bowl, the meats and the vegetables are in the middle, and it's like on a, a, a bed of grains usually. And the meats and the vegetables, you have to wait until it's served to you by the, the mother or the person who has cooked the food. And you, who's the guest, and they want to express teranga to you, they would give you the choices parts all the time. And all of that to say how um, this belief of offering, especially the unexpected guest, offering him the food, mm. is a belief that that unexpected guest, the foreigner, the other, is actually some sort of an angel. That's a superstition, right? It's an angel that's bringing some blessings to you. Mm. And for you to receive those blessings, you have to... Uh, make sure that person gets some of your food. So you, as Amy, even if you didn't feel like eating, you have to take at least a bite of that food for those people in Senegal to feel like they have expressed their anger to you. So it's a, it's really a, something that we strongly believe in. My restaurants in New York are called Teranga for that reason. And, and uh, that's a word that you'd see across Senegal when you travel. You'll see it everywhere. It's It's just so beautiful, Pierre, how you describe Teranga as beyond a simple act and it's beyond habit or tradition, but it's almost spiritual. Like mm. the, the idea that somebody coming into your home mm. unexpectedly is an angel coming to bless your family. And that is how I hope that we can think about the humans that we interact with, that we come in contact with completely serendipitously or by accident. Like you have no idea how how you've encountered this being or this person or this community. And you're like, but I'm going to take this as a gift. And so let me give a gift back to you. And there's just something really profound about that, that I wish we had that in all cultures. I, I think there are versions of it probably, but there's something so special about how you describe it in Senegal. What are the rules of receiving in Senegal? Or what do you think is like the most gracious way to to accept a gift? Because I think that's actually really hard for people. Similarly to like, I think people have a really hard time taking a compliment, right? Like the immediate, <laughs> yes. oh, this old thing. 
Yeah, or like, oh, I, you know, like, I, it was nothing. It was no big deal. When it's like, no, this is, again, that's a, an offering, right? A compliment is an offering. So what's the best way to take in a gift like that? So it's, it's, it's just the whole context, the culture is different. You know, the right way to receive it is actually to receive it. And, and if you're unexpected and you come to a house and they give you something, you, you have to, at least, even if you're not hungry, you have to take a spoonful. And, and mm-hmm. eat or, or take a handful because we eat with our hands too. You know, the food tastes better this way. So receive it. You know, the, uh, refusing is not correct. You know, and yeah. um, it's actually denying the blessings too <laughs> that I'm trying to get from you. Yeah. And so, it, it, so there's that thing. And it, it's also, you know, I mentioned culturally because it's, uh, you know, we, we come from a place where, um, so our tradition, the way the society, the way it was organized, we have something called the, the griots, right? The storytellers, right? And the storytellers are like there at most all the family events, all the all the occasions, and they're there to like uh, tell the story, you know, tell the story of your, your line. Your, I mean, they have, they go way back. It's a family in its own self, and that's transmitted from generation to generation. And uh, to get back to, to food, right? I like to see us as, as griots, as food tellers, because when you look at the food that we present, I mean, the traditional West African food is food that's been transmitted from generation to generation, mm. from mother to daughter, from grandmother to mother. And each of those recipes is a story. How does a person who is raising your children in the U.S., mm. who's the griot for you here? How do you make sure or how has it evolved if it's different than that, that your children hear the story of their lineage, uh, whether, you know, your lineage, Lisa's lineage, who tells that story to them? Now it becomes our responsibility, Yeah, both Lisa and I. And uh, yeah, we we are both passionate about, about our culture. And so that's important. I think it's important that uh, the kids, our children stay connected to the story, that part of the story, and uh, maybe we're not as eloquent as as a griot because that's just a, you know a skill in its own self. But it's important that they know the story. I mean, for me, even being in the kitchen as a career and intentionally deciding to um, revisit the food of my origins, because when I started cooking, it was like early '90s in New York City at the time. You know, African food was absent. West African mm. food was, uh, and, and to me, I saw it as an opportunity. First of all, you know, I was like, you know, if I'm going to have a career in cooking, I want to have a career that gives me opportunity to tell my story. And then I also thought my food had its place in the so-called food capital of the world. So it was a way to, to, to rewrite the story. It was a way to share, you know, um, the the flavors of my uh, origins, and it was a way to. Also, make to belong really, and that sense of belonging led me to you know opening restaurants, writing cookbooks, and you know launching CPG and stuff like this. But it was really also, I believe, a way to tell my version of the story to this audience who had been used to hearing different stories of 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 where I was from, different stories of of Africa. You know, mostly many of it were biased story. You know, the relationship between America and, and Africa has always been fraught. And, you know, that story was coming from um, the other side. So, and that wasn't the ex- Africa that I experienced. So food 
was the the perfect medium to say that story because in food we you taste it and and it's, it's there right you you know and uh, and also connecting that food with the 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 middle passage and and southern food and and the whole americas and you realize that hey you know we've been present you know it's not, that food is not so unfamiliar i love that idea of food being an opportunity for you to rewrite and revise your story of self as well to say no actually this is significant for so many reasons and you don't even know so let me share this with you and that what you're giving to everybody who eats at one of your restaurants which are amazing and i have eaten at is that blessing is that same blessing is that same offering of not just you but of of everything that is important to you i i just think there's something so magical about that and you know you you casually mentioned all of the different ways that your career has evolved but you know you are an accomplished chef you're a cookbook author you're a food entrepreneur you're a food distributor you're a restaurateur you have brought west african foods kind of broadly into the us market that didn't exist before and it's just been this career made of food do you remember when you first uh knew that this was going to be your life or or do you have a, a food memory that you were like oh this is it like this this is this is how i know what my trajectory is going to be is going to be focused on this well first of all when i started this journey I, i never imagined that i would be doing all of this this started with with food from memory i was working at restaurants i worked at italian french restaurants american restaurants and and looking for my food and then the opportunity was when you cook family meal you know when you cook family meal which is the staff meal at the restaurant mm. when it's my turn i look for the memory the food that's going to you know the food that i miss it sat with me really the food that i miss and then like oh today i'm going to make this peanut sauce and this peanut sauce i'm going to serve it to the staff and the staff obviously never had it and looking at their reaction i'm like Mm, they like it you know tomorrow I do another next time I do and 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 that's how it really started and really started to be you know um these memory recipes being writing writing them down and and realizing that there is a room for it these are great flavors this is great food this is healthy this is nutritious there's so much going for it and it's not seen here you know you see versions of it when you look at uh, you know southern food you look at gumbo you know it's our food you know it's like mm-hmm. hey you know mm-hmm. it's like but you know we have you know we have to claim it so that was my thing you know i was claiming it and i was kind of also reconnecting with my my roots you know as i'm digging deep i'm like going to keep on doing my own research and share it with the world but doing my research meant traveling exploring visiting you know mothers and and going to markets everywhere in west africa and just taking all of those and putting it down on paper for books or or testing it at my restaurants and that was this journey that kept taking me further and further and i realized that it's a mission you know it was a mission not only to to be a, an ambassador for my food culture but i felt like i'm a custodian of this cuisine mm. you know and so i was blessed by opportunities that kept taking me to greater stages or audiences you know it's very similar i think our missions right about recentering the story so you know another family meal you would assume oh we're going to make pasta or some i don't even know what french things are whatever and uh and <laughs> you're like, and yeah, bread. <laughs> yeah i mean i like all those things but you you know you're like oh okay but i'm going to make 
peanut sauce and um, as you said, and that just is just moving the window over. It's to say, like, why wouldn't the window be here? And I think that's part of what our mission is, too, is just it's sort of a deep inner confidence in our own value and culture to say this isn't about negating anyone else's, but ours is fantastic and we want to invite you into it. And I think it's just really beautiful to hear you describe it. You know, as you're speaking, Pierre, I think everything you're saying about kind of boundarylessness or just mm-hmm. like removing those borders is also what it's like what love is. It's what that gift giving is. It's what Taranga is, is saying here is this exchange of of love and of food as an expression of our love. I really think that and and you're saying it here is that one of the most beautiful ways to like hold hands with another person is to share a meal with them, particularly if it's a meal that tells a story about yourself. Yeah. And I just, I, I, I love that this has been something that has been evolving and growing for you and that you're sharing it like across continents now. You know, I've been um, grieving a very close family member in the last couple of weeks. And uh, in Jewish tradition, there's a lot of feeding people during this time. And it's really beautiful. It's the feeding the alive people um, and taking care. And I'm curious, what is a Senegalese sort of grieving tradition holding people? And what are some of the, you know, food and hospitable ways that play into that tradition? Similarly, similarly, in my Senegal cookbook, I do talk about it, you know, and because food is like there at every moment of your life, right? At, from mm. the birth to like to the end, to death. And, and I talked about my father's uh, funeral, my father's passing and, and the f- through the food. I mean, so many people show up to the funeral because mm-hmm. there's going to be food, you know, and sometimes you don't, <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you, know, you don't even know if those people really knew your father or anything. They just, but <laughs> what fascinated me uh, when my father passed and I saw a bull being dragged into the, 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 the courtyard and the bull being slaughtered there. And then the way the organization skilled, because I mean, the, the bull is slaughtered by the men, right? And then immediately it's like, you know, cut into pieces and then into huge balls. Mm. And you see these big logs of wood to make fire and they start cooking in this amazing thing. And the next day you have these big platters of like this most delicious laughs and like yasa with onion and lime and this mm-hmm. beef each part of the beef was a different meal and then the whole house and courtyard and you know people eating outside it goes even to the neighbor's house because that's the community so everyone is you know contributing and and the food is I mean, amazing how you can cook so much food with like you know open fire and 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 it's like happening like that for a whole period of time and then they'll come back you know a week later for another way of celebrating him through food again, and then 40 days later, mm-hmm. and then the following year at the anniversary. His food mm. is always there. It just also reminds you that you're alive. Mm? Yeah, he's alive. And that's yeah. right. We, we, we grieve, but we also know that it's, you know, it's not the end, and, and we want to make sure he's celebrated, you know, especially um, you know, when that person is older, you even see dancing. People yeah. are dancing, you know, they're sad, but they're dancing. And then 
you have, you know, in the tradition we from Jola, it's like a, a tradition, it's like it's the part of Senegal where people are more animist or, or, or Christian, even though Senegal is mostly Muslim. But you see libation people pouring some wine and palm wine and, you know, and, and the drinks that they would like when they were alive. They pour it and they talk to them as they pour it and they're mm-hmm. like, hey, you know, and, and it's just it's just beautiful. I mean, for someone from a different culture, you would be scratching your head and, and but we'd be fascinated to it. Be, it's really, is a, you know, it's quite a way to like see how the dead are not dead in our culture, you know. And now you see that the dead is everywhere now, more so than it was when he or she was alive. Now the dead is in the ground, in the leaves, in the mm. wind, in the water running. I mean, it's just, and they see it. <laughs> and this is just, you see it if you're from that culture, you like, you accept it. But you know, when you say that actually, funnily enough, there's so many parallels that actually would feel extremely familiar. Even the structure of it, right away, seven days, 40 days, or in Judaism, it's 30 mm-hmm. days, and then a year. It's the exact same yeah. structure because I think that's a human, those are human time. Yeah. Those are not, I mean, as we've talked about the arbitrary nature of of a border or somebody imposing certain borders, there's also so much of culture that is not arbitrary at all. It's completely comes from human need and experience. It's like you need that. You need to know as the son of this person that your father was loved, that you are alive, that he will continue in the trees and in in our souls. And it makes perfect sense somehow without needing to apply whatever like physics to it or something like it it just it Mm -hmm. all makes sense to me. 100 percent. And, and the deeper, the further back we go, the closer we will get together because we take out all those layers of, you know, things that we added to separate us. And we realize that we, we all, you know, have so much in common. I mean, working with Lisa, for instance, she's from Japan and from Senegal and, and, and realizing the, the similarities in even the food, the way we approach food. I mean, we both, even our rice growing traditionally, you know, in Senegal, when we harvest the rice, we have a part that goes into the altar for like, you know, for the food and the Japanese do the similar thing. You know, the way we use fermenting into our cooking, they use the same thing. As a matter of fact, we have a, a fermented ingredient we call dawa dawa and it's a fermented bean, the similar bacteria that the Japanese use in their fermented uh, natto, you know. the, the Oh. Thing. Yeah, it, it is, you know, so it's fascinating. If you look and uh, you really want to see, you will see so many similarities between Jewish mm. and Africans and, and, and Asians and, and everyone, really. I, ha- I have a question. You know, you were talking earlier about uh, about all the stories that are passed through from grandmother to daughter and and to sons, to you as well. What is um, of your cooking, of the dishes that you've made, or maybe it's in uh, the Simply West African your new cookbook, but what is the most important story that you wanted to share of your family or of, of one of your ancestors? Well, I, I you know, to, to be uh, transparent, I even talk about it in the book. I, I ask people as they cook these the recipes from the book to approach it in the way my mom would approach it, you know, because my mom is uh, actually, it started with me taking recipes from her, you know, because as you imagine, growing up in Senegal, cooking was a gender-based activity and boys weren't in the kitchen. And this is only when I really got into cooking that I went, I started calling mom and taking recipes. And and mm. she would be here and trying to see this 
new American boy now trying to write down things like and asking questions <laughs> like how many teaspoons and how many minutes. And that's not how she would cook. And she mm-hmm. would smile and laugh at me and say, that's not how it goes, you know. And over time, it realized the way we cook is cooking with the senses. And mm. cooking with the senses meant for my mom, you have to be present in the kitchen, like present with all your senses. Present meant when you smell, smell. When you taste, taste and do taste and do look and do hear. And I mean, that's just such a different way of cooking, making you such a better cook. You know, if you don't mm. just take the recipes, the recipes are the guidelines, but then in addition to the recipes being present and, and that presence starts at the market when you start shopping. That's what my mom would say. When you go shopping, do not buy the fish unless you touched it. Do not buy anything unless you touched it, looked at it or smelled it. And even mm. if you could taste it, taste it, you know, but does that, that's how you communicate with the ingredients. And communication with the ingredients is possible. You know, it's like they actually talk to you. They talk to you by showing to you how it's too firm, it's too soft, it smells, is it bright as the eyes of the fish are bright and shiny or the gills are red or the the smell. And the, all the way to the, the, the heat, you know, when you turn on your fire and you have the oil, is it sizzling? Is it, you know, that sound has to give you some kind of way of telling you if it's hot enough or not. Is it smoking? It's too hot. Is it now? Is it smelling burnt? Is it tasting is it like you need enough salt or not? Every single one of the recipes are an opportunity for the the cook, the reader, to even communicate with my, my ancestors, my tradition. It's like to, they like continuing a conversation that started hundreds of years ago. There's something so transcendent about how if you can actually be present in this act, then you can access like a sixth sense of being in communication with your ancestors. Like, that's fucking wild. It is and wild. It's wild. And it's totally. also accessible and possible if we just like let ourselves go there. Yeah, that's it. That's yep. it. You have to be intentional, but and it's not that difficult. It's not that much of a stretch. I mean, just know where those recipes are coming from mm-hmm. and just, you know, and, and start, you know, being here. You know, for me, it's like it starts by just setting the tone and, and cleaning up the kitchen as I enter it and, and just put the ingredients and just clear my mind and, and bring some joy to that doesn't don't be stressed. I mean, be joyful, yeah. you know, relax. Be joyful. Um, we have a few questions to wrap up. How much food? This is an important question. This is something that Rebecca and I feel very strongly about. Very. This is an important way to wrap. Yes. Is how much food is enough food when you're hosting people? Like, I think it's 50% more than you needed, just in case. Yeah, definitely 50%. And uh, there's got to be leftovers. People have to have the opportunity of serving themselves a couple of times. Yes, and uh, and and that's so important, you know. Is uh, abundance is part of the the the, the qualification of a, a good meal. You know, people have to feel like they are being served generously, and obviously, do not waste food. So it's got to be also in a way that it's like is is delicious. People enjoy it, and and it's abundant. And and uh, I'm trying to think of a of a word in Wolof to translate it. It's kind of a difficult, but. You have 
rest and rap. I don't know. It's like so. It's a you have digested it. You know, it's like in a um, and that may sound gross. It's getting cultural. <laughs> <laughs> you burped, right? <laughs> oh yeah. You know? My kids say my compliments to the chef after they burp. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's one way to do it to to like you know you want your guests to to eat so that they burp and then they burp. That means they really have have their 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 full of food. So oh, it needs well, to be generous. I think that's great. And then the last thing is any guidance. You are such a a a beautiful light for people who are creating these environments in which we can share, in which we can love each other better, in which we can welcome other people in and truly try and be in community, I think, with food and with hospitality. So I I don't know that Americans are all very good at this. So any piece of advice, what would, if you would have one piece of advice for somebody who's like, you know, I've never really hosted before, or I've never really cooked for other people before, but I want to, what would you say to somebody who's starting out? Oh, I, I would absolutely encourage that person to overcome those fears, you know, because there's like sometimes there's like this this fear that stops you from even taking the steps of entertaining people. But there's so much that you are giving and you this is the best opportunity by sharing your food. There's such an intimate way of, of sharing, of, of giving, of who you are, what you are, especially if the, that's the food from your your culture from your memories of food that you just enjoy. That's really what you usually give, you know, you give food that you enjoy cooking. I always try to let people know that, you know, cooking is doesn't have to be something so intimidating. I mean, just do it. That's the, what I would tell them. Just do it. I love that. You know, Pierre, this is so meaningful. And especially in this time it just it feels so grounding. So we're just really grateful to you for being on like parallel missions with us, um, you know, in the way that we're telling stories and the confidence I think we all have that our, our stories are good stories to tell yeah. and essential stories to tell. And I think, you know, it's just really thrilling to be in this in this work and in this world with you. So thank you. Thank you, Pierre. You're welcome. Thank you to Pierre. I am so full from this conversation. Hospitality may be the capstone of our lives, the lives we're building, what we're aspiring towards, what we hope to instill in others, welcoming others in, just doing it cone class. Oh, cone class is the most important, right? And we have been so beyond grateful for all of our guests this season as we celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Mashup Americans. Randall Park, Channing Nicholas, Lisa Ling... Rain Wilson, Jonathan Menheve, I'm going to keep going. Jonathan Menheve, our Pooja Lakshman, Jeff Chang, Minjin Lee, Lisa Tragar, and today, Pierre Tiam. What a season. We're going to continue soaking up all the wisdom from the past couple months and take a little breather for the holidays, but we'll see you back in 2024 for more goodies. So in the meantime, go back and binge The Ultimate Guide to a Mashup Life. Find us on social at Mashup American and go live your very best life. We love you. This podcast is a production of The Mashup Americans. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lair. Senior editor and producer is Sarah Pellegrini. Production manager is Shelby Sandlin. Thanks to DJ Rob Swift for our theme song, Salsa Scratch. Additional engineering support by Pedro Rafael Rosado. 
please make sure to follow and share this show with your friends. Bye.